0: If you'll turn with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel chapter 10, we're going to continue our study as we're going through Matthew's Gospel, studying the Word of God week after week together. And our theme this morning is to look at the first two apostles that we introduced last week as we looked at verses 1 through 4 of the text, and to turn to specifically the first two names there that we find in verse 2. If we were to ask the question, what is God's Today? What's going on? Why are we here? What is God doing? All of those are great questions for us to ask. What we find here in Matthew chapter 10 is the beginning, the unfolding of what God's plan is. We saw last week that God chooses frail human vessels, deposits them with the gospel, gives to them the gospel and the commission to go and make disciples. That's the plan. That's it. It's a, this is the football, gentlemen, type of a timeout and meeting. Oftentimes the church gets away from, from the, what God has called her to do. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 10, we find it refreshing to look not only at what is God's plan, but who did God use? And our goal, the next couple of sessions together, services together, is to look at that very answer, that very question. We assume that everyone knows who the apostles are. And we assume that everyone knows uh, uh, quite a bit about them. So our goal this morning and next week is not to necessarily preach the apostles, but we are preaching line by line, verse by verse, and looking at these trophies or portraits of God's grace. Looking at men who've been changed by the gospel of Christ, looking at their faults, looking at their failures, And also looking at their redemption and God's marvelous grace that was poured out in their life. And so as we look here, what we find is there is no plan B. Church, we are God's plan. In the same way that God called these original disciples, as we saw in verse 1 last week, where verse 1 tells us that Jesus then called to him his 12 disciples. And then in verse 2, the transition is made. Now the 12 apostles' names are these. For the first time in scripture, we see this distinction, how these disciples move from simply students and learners to God's men, the master's men, to go forth with the precious gospel of Christ. Let's just remind ourselves that the only plan that God has for reaching the world is that for those who know him, witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. If it ever sounds like sometimes we're saying the same thing in the life of the church, it's because we are. The Great Commission is our calling and our mandate. One commentator says this, the greatness of God's grace is seen and is choosing these undeserving men, particularly people, and qualifying them to do the work that they are unqualified to do. And that is why we use the words being trophies of God's grace. Friends, when people see you, when we see these disciples and these apostles, when people see us, what they should see is God's grace is the story. It is all of Him. Now, let's set the context in our mind looking there in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 again. And when Jesus had called His twelve disciples to Him, He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, notice here, this is where we will emphasize this morning. First, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas, the Iscariot. Last time, last week, we looked together, we noted some very common things that jump off the surface level to us as we look at this list of men. And and very quickly, we noted that they were all Galileans except for Judas Iscariot. We noticed that most of them were impacted by their preaching and public ministry of John the Baptist. We took time to consider how they were sovereignly called and chosen by Christ to be his disciples. Jesus would tell them in John 15, you have not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you and appointed you to be my disciples. We noted how they were chosen by prayer as Jesus spent in Luke chapter 6, a night of prayer before the Father, before officially calling them to follow him in this way. We looked at how there seems to be an order to their arrangement and how Christ puts them together. And the overall theme last week is that the Apostles, the capital big A Apostles, are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us that. Their names will be inscribed on the walls of the New Jerusalem. We, we talk about in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 how the church continued in the doctrine that Jesus gave to them, taught them. It was known and coined as the Apostles' Doctrine. The, the early church continued in the breaking of bread and fellowship in the Apostles' Doctrine. We also noticed how their messages were authenticated with the signs of an apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, giving us this. Now this morning, we want to begin by looking there in verse 2, the very first name in this list, and for the next few moments, we want to consider the life of Peter, the life of Peter. Notice verse 2 says, first of all, Simon, first of all, Simon. Anytime in the New Testament we find a list where the Holy Spirit leads one of the gospel writers to pen for us, the apostles, there's always one name that comes first. There's always an order to the list. They tend to be in the same groupings. But what we find is what we find here in this text that first of all, the Holy Spirit says, There is Simon. In the Greek, Simon's name there means chief or protos, first in rank. It's the same word used when Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, I am first and foremost. Of all the sinners. Same word is, is used in that sense there. Peter is the unquestioned leader of the twelve. He is mentioned first. He is the clear spokesman in most of the, the context where the disciples are present. And they're interacting with the Lord. Peter is the one who is a natural, quintessential leader. By the way, in a world that's obsessed with leadership, we need leadership Peter gives us many, many lessons, and usually within the context of what not to do. What not to do. We do need leadership. Peter is a quintessential leader, but it's not until he's filled or yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit till we see what to do. As we look into these texts, we find that the Holy Spirit also prominently features Peter so that we can witness the radical transformation of the gospel's power in his life. Sometimes we wonder why the Holy Spirit puts into Scripture and superintends into Scripture what he does. But I just want us to know, I am grateful that the Holy Spirit records for us using the Gospel penmen and the, the writers of Scripture to tell us not only the strengths of those that God uses, but also their weaknesses, also their sins. Not that we glory in that, but it gives us hope, church. It lets us know that these men are ordinary men, just like you and just like me. What a beautiful transformation we find in the record of Scripture when we move from the gospel records all the way to the epistles, First and 2 Peter. We see a completely different Peter, and that's where we're going to conclude this morning, is the end of Peter's life. A warm, elder, stately gentleman of the church. Bold, he's still bold. Pointed, he's still pointed. But yet the Holy Spirit has controlled him, strengthened him. And God uses him to shepherd along with James and John and Paul, the early church. And the tone that we see in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is much different than the uncontrolled, loudmouthed Peter all throughout the Gospels that we will take time to look at uh, this morning. What we find in 1 and 2 Peter is that Peter moves from an impulsive, vacillating, double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways to an example of what a spiritual rock in the church looks like what someone who is anchored, anchored in and rooted in the Word of God, what they look like. Truly, what is the foundation of the church? Now, as we look here, I want us to look at, after studying Peter, we will take great courage and hope, hopefully, this morning. May the Lord help us to see that. May the Lord help us to see his examples of where he falls and also see where we do as well. And may the Lord help us to identify but yet not stay there in our sins, but to identify with Peter's weaknesses and frailness, and then to also see how he overcomes that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just want to remind us, friends, even this morning, God is still calling disciples, imperfect disciples. And so many people think that before they can come to Christ, they have to get their act together. So many people think they have to get cleaned up. When I... When I get this, 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 and this done, then I will come to Christ and he will accept me and I can truly go all in for Christ. Friend, that is wrong. That's why we opened with the call to worship that we did this morning. The call of God is to come to him now as you are. And when you come to God as you are, that's wonderful, but he will not leave you there. He will change you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you sufficient grace to strengthen you, to put your feet on a firm foundation, on solid ground again, and to help you walk in this journey of grace into the likeness and the image of Christ. Listen to the wisdom as we consider Peter's life of Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises again. But the wicked shall fall by calamity. Righteous men, just men, Do fall. What we're going to see here this morning is that Peter falls a lot, but by God's grace, he rises a lot. Peter is someone that we can look to as someone who, not as an excuse for our sin, but someone who makes mistakes, some of them serious. And yet the Lord still has room in his kingdom for people who make serious mistakes, but repent of their sin and follow after him with fresh faith and forgiveness, asking them to help him. One thing we see when we look at the life of Peter is that he's a he's what we could call a spiritual plotter. He's growing. It's not always fast, it's not always slow, but one thing we can say for sure is that he is continuing. He is a spiritual plotter and it's a reminder to us of our own sanctification journey, brothers and sisters in Christ. Rising, growing, we rise, we grow, we fall, we have setbacks. We fall, we have setbacks, and it goes on and on and on. Unless you grow tired of Peter's own story, then don't look too closely at your own. Lest you look very far enough, you'll see that we have the same exact struggle in our own life. This is the key lesson that we learn from looking at this Simon Peter who is first. The sanctific- sanctifying grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to look into the text and we're going to notice just a couple of things as we look at a survey of this Simon Peter who comes first. And the first thing I want to notice, I want us to notice is Peter's background. Peter's background. The first thing we notice is that here in the text his name is mentioned as Simon. Originally it was Simon. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 changed his name. Jesus liked to change names what we find here is that Jesus encounters Peter face to face, and he changes his name to Peter, or in Aramaic, it's rendered as Cephas, which means rock, rock. This was no mistake. Peter is the leader. And in Matthew chapter 16, we see this conversation that we alluded to last week, so we will not unpack it again. But it's a famous moment in the life of not only the church, but in the life of Peter where Jesus takes the, quote, the spokesman of the apostles and lets him know a personal lesson, but also teaches a corporate lesson about what he is doing, what his kingdom plan is. He asks Peter a question, and Peter makes a declaration of faith that we will refer to more than once this morning. And Jesus says, affirms, correct. And upon this statement of faith, I will build my church. What was that statement of faith? It is the doctrine of the deity Of Christ Jesus our Lord he is the Son of God he is the only Son of God and it is on this chief cornerstone that God will build his church amen we are told in scripture that if we lift high Christ lift high the name of Jesus that he will draw all men to himself in his sanctification we find that he faced and following Christ The transforming power of God's grace to yield and to bow to Christ is the true rock, the true foundation of the church. Now, as we think about Peter's background in the New Testament, when Jesus called him Simon, he signaled that Peter had done something, usually when he used his name, he signaled that Peter had done something wrong, wrong. Like for example, my name is Christopher Riley LeGrand Lamb. And the only time those names are ever used is listen when I've done something wrong. Now, thankfully, I have a wife that has never called me like that, but my, my, my mom and dad did. In the same way, when we see in the Scriptures, Simon, Simon, it is usually when Peter is in trouble, and it signals that Peter is in trouble. So his name begins to shift from that natural name that he was given to Peter. Simon Peter. In fact, you could chronicle his his journey of discipleship as moving from Simon in the scriptures to where the name is only Simon, and then there's Simon Peter, and then there's just Peter. And when he's known as just Peter in the epistles of First and Second Peter, it, it's a glorious tr- pointing to God's grace in his life. Matthew chapter sixteen, verse seventeen, he is defined as Simon Bar Jonah, which means Simon the son of John. In John chapter 1, verse 44, he's called Peter, who was from Bethsaida. He eventually moved to Capernaum, where he, we find, had a wife, and he had a mother-in-law. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 tells us this. So it tells us a little bit about his life and his, his family. As we have already seen in our study of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Peter's home seems to be a, a base of sorts, a, a, a base camp of sorts for Jesus' ministry. Jesus not only goes there to perform a healing of Jesus' mother-in-law, but he returns there again and again. Knowing that Jesus has no home for himself, Peter's house is a place of refuge for him, one of the places of refuge that he goes to. John chapter 1, verse 35 tells us that also that Peter was deeply affected by the ministry of John the Baptist. So Peter's background, this is what we know of him as we look at the gospel records and the gospel accounts. Something else we find, number two, is that Peter was included in the inner circle. Some people don't like this, but the disciples were the disciples or the apostles, but then there was an inner circle. That inner circle included both Peter, James, and John. There's a number of references in the New Testament where we find that these men had a front row privilege to the ministry of Jesus in a way that the other disciples did not. In fact, In Matthew's listing in Matthew chapter 10, in one sense, what you have is the first list there are those who were closest to Jesus. The second medium list are those who were a little bit further away. And then the last group are those, it seems that Jesus did not, we don't have a lot of scripture uh, references or texts that really tell us about the interactions or conversations that Jesus had with those individuals. Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 8 describes for us how Peter, James, and John had the awesome Privilege and opportunity to witness the transfiguration of Christ. What a unique privilege that was. And Peter will go on in his epistle to strengthen the church. And there's a number of things we'll point to this morning that reminds us that Peter, unlike maybe most of the writers, affirms the sufficiency of God's Word. Particularly, Peter uses as being part of this inner circle, having the privilege to see the, the glorious transfiguration of Christ. Peter will later strengthen the church and affirm the church by letting them know that they have a more sure word of prophecy in the word of God. Based on what, Peter? How do we know? Based on the fact that Peter says, I was one of those who was able to see the glorified, transfigured Christ. And as great as that was, as wonderful as a privilege and experience as that was, church, you have a more sure experience You have a more sure word of prophecy held in your hands than you have even in your hands this morning. And that is in the scripture, the authority and power of God's word. So Peter was a part of that inner circle, had privileges within that inner circle, and he uses that not for his own bragging. Peter doesn't write a book in the sense of a tell-all saying, let me tell you about some things that I have seen. He doesn't use it like that. He doesn't use it as a club. He doesn't use it as a badge, as a sense to beat the head of people. What he uses it is, is to strengthen it to serve the church. Mark chapter 5 tells us that Peter had the unique opportunity to witness the ruler's daughter being raised. Mark chapter 14, that he was there obviously with a front row seat witnessing Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. In one sense, you could destri- describe Peter like this. If Jesus stopped, Peter ran into him. Everywhere Jesus went, there was Peter. Peter was bold. Peter was a a self-starter. Peter was someone who was not going to let things lapse on his watch, if you will. Peter was nosy. Peter Peter was just involved. Peter was loud. Peter was vocal. There are many wonderful things about that, and there's also some not-so-wonderful things about that with all of our strengths and weaknesses. Not only Peter's background and not only the fact that Peter was included in the, quote, inner circle. Now I want to point to Peter's personality. Peter, as we know in the Scriptures, was admirably bold as a lion. What you see, if you were to take a look at Peter, is one thing. Not his muscles, not his stature, but his mouth. You hear Peter before you ever see him. What we find as we look into the record of Scripture that he is... He is verbal. He's impulsive. He's absolute. He's vacillating. He's not so admirably double-minded oftentimes in some of these records that we see. He says one thing, but he does another. Also, Peter tends to speak first without thinking about what he's saying. Peter tends to speak without giving consideration to the full repercussions of the subject. If you were to have a class and Peter was attending your class, Uh, he would be the first one to raise that hand every single time and to offer up something either helpful or not so helpful. But take note of this. In the New Testament, Peter is on the record of speaking more than any other person except for Christ himself. Peter has the not-so-wonderful badge, notice here, of being the only apostle who attempts to rebuke the Lord more than once. If he didn't get his lesson the first time, He does it again and again, only to be taught and to to be corrected. As we look into the record of Scripture, Peter is also the one who gives us the clearest confession of faith on the person and deity of Christ. As I mentioned, looking back to Matthew chapter 16. Peter also has the designation, listen, of being the one who denied Christ multiple times. Jesus was not alone in that. Jesus, as we know, even prophesied and foretold him that he would deny him. And yet we think and sit in judgment of Peter and say, Well, surely, if the Lord told me that I was going to do something, surely we would be on guard against that. And we would not do that. But obviously, God is sovereign. And God has all knowledge, not just of our outer shell and the empty words that we speak sometimes, but he knows the motives, the thoughts, and the intents of the heart. As so we consider Peter's personality, and as our Sunday school class did this morning, we often excuse our personalities. We often act like our personalities are just some unique, wonderful thing that, it, that uh, radiate from us, as if they originate from us. And say, like, well, that's just who I am. Uh, that's just who the lambs are. That's just, we're generationally like this, as if that excuses some type of sin that may be a, a presumptuous sin. We can look in Peter's life and see that it is obvious that Peter is is both great with his mouth in the sense of being bold and speaking for Christ, but yet there are many, many foot-in-mouth situations. Can you relate? I can. And I don't know, maybe you can. But it reminds us practically as we think about in the life of the church some wisdom that we need to remember from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 11, A fool utters all his mind, leaves nothing to be desired, but a wise man holds his words back. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Well, so we see the precept or just the general principle there in Proverbs. Peter is the visual aid to that. So we see here that Peter in the Scriptures is the obvious metaphor or classic go-to example. Proverbs 10, verse 19 goes on to say, But he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs chapter 28 there in that same passage, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered a wise and perceptive man. To look at Peter and to consider his personality is to be a reminder to us, friends, brothers and sisters of Christ here this morning, is that there are many lessons from Peter's life that are lessons of the tongue. Lessons of the tongue. We need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to guard our words, to guard our mouth. We see many of these accounts where Peter is bold to say something quickly but he has no backing of that. And Jesus gives the warning that every idle word that we speak will be judged in the day of judgment. James describes it like this, James chapter 3, verse 8, the tongue must be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. So friends, we need, we need, not, we need not sit in judgment of Peter this morning. May the Lord help us to look at our own life and say, Father, where are my words empty? Where am I prone to be uncontrolled With my tongue. Maybe a prayer we need to pray as we consider this aspect of Peter's life and then to our own is the prayer in Psalm 114, verse 3. Oh God, set a watch over my mouth, over my tongue. Keep a watch over my lips. Peter's personality. Friends, personality is no excuse to violate God's word. We need God to change us every single day. We need His word to come in and to shape us Romans chapter 12 1 and 2 language to renew us to change us every single day as we offer ourselves to him and you know in the process of Peter's biography and journey we see that that's exactly what happens in his life Peter's background Peter's inclusion number three Peter's personality number four we see his weaknesses and strengths as we look into the text here we find amazingly enough that it seems as if Peter's weaknesses and strengths are often together, present, on display, always in the same text. This is amazing. You and I tend to pick and choose when our best moments are, we're on our best behavior, those types of things. Peter doesn't seem to have that ability. Uh, Peter seems to have his best moments and simultaneously to have his worst moments all within the span of two sentences. We see this, and I'm going to give you some examples of this. Mark chapter 14, verse 30 through 32. In this passage, he is speaking and he sees Jesus walking on the water. He and the disciples are in the boat. And this is where Peter demonstrates just his natural, without thought leadership. Peter has a sense within him, if no one else will, I will. Well, actually, it's not even that. He doesn't even think about anybody else. He just simply says, I will. He doesn't even really think about what anybody else is doing. Peter is just naturally the first. He demonstrates the faith in Christ to step out of the boat, to walk on the water. And then in the same moment, he nearly drowns, becomes a living object lesson for a lapse of faith. So lest we mock him or laugh at him, it's amazing. And then it's astounding, all all in one. John chapter 13, verse 6, we see in this account, that he refuses to let his feet be washed by Christ. He has this natural uh, stiff armness. It's a sense of pride. Oftentimes when people want to serve us in some way, the Holy Spirit has led them to do something. It's humbling. And oftentimes it's a sense of pride in us on display and that we will not allow it to happen. I'll never forget an elderly lady telling me, shut up, LeGrand, and let me follow what the Lord has led me to do. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It was a learning moment for me. Oh, you don't, no, 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 no. Shut up, LeGrand. Sometimes plain talk is easily understood, and we need to be told bluntly, and that was such a case. We see in that situation, he denies the Lord and contests with the Lord, Lord, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And then in the next sentence, he asks the Lord to bathe him, to wash him completely. Now he's gone too far. That's not what Jesus was, was that was not the point. In John chapter 18, verse 10, we see another example where his weaknesses and his strengths, they're all on display in one complete setting. John chapter 18, verse 10, we find that he could not muster the spiritual strength to pray with Jesus throughout the night in the garden at a key and pivotal moment of the ministry of Christ. But yet in the next moment, he's swinging a sword boldly attempting to chop off the head of a Roman soldier. And yet he didn't have the strength to pray just a few moments before. But maybe out of all the accounts where we see Peter as a learning, walking, learning illustration before us in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 16, which we refer to quite a bit this morning, verses 15 through 23, we find in that text that Peter makes, by divine revelation, Jesus tells him, this did not come from you, but this comes from the Heavenly Father. This is divine. Peter makes the bold confession, you are the Christ, Son of the living God, And then the next statement, Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Again, Peter has that unique designation out of all the apostles as being called, in a sense, Satan, being used by Satan. I was in a bookstore the other day, and the young man that was checking me out had a unique T-shirt on. There may be something I don't know culturally or whatever, but all it said was, not today, Satan. And I just sat there as he was checking me out and just contemplated that, and I was like, that's interesting, well, that's, that's the kind of moment that he had. He looked at Peter and he said, not today, Satan. We see Peter move from this bold declaration of who Christ is, and then he gets told in front of everyone that he is being used of Satan. He is, he is speaking wicked things. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, we see where he confesses and tells the Lord. He says, Lord, I am ready to follow you wherever you go. I'm all in. I will follow you to prison and to death. Jesus looks at him, excuse me, and tells him, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And that's exactly what took forth. Now, most of us, if we were to interact with such a man, we would not consider him for church leadership. We would say, what a buffoon. What a loser. What a, what a clown. But friends, it's a reminder that Peter is a trophy of God's grace just like you are a trophy of God's grace. Now think about it like this. The Holy Spirit of God, for our learning, as Paul says, these things were written aforetime for our learning, edification, instruction, and admonition. The Holy Spirit of God chooses to include some of the best moments of Peter's life and some of the worst moments of Peter's life that are given to us, that are on full display. Aren't you thankful that the same is not true of you? Aren't you thankful that your life is not recorded for the church for all time to, to, to be read and preached on on a Sunday morning hour to be seen? but Yet that is the unique calling that God placed upon Peter. In fact, one thing that we see that Peter would be what we'd call a, a stubborn sin in Peter's life, a, a reoccurring sin, we find it in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11-13, through 13, where Peter would say one thing and then do another. This was a lifelong struggle for him, and it's one for all of us, hypocrisy. Peter had no problem joyously sharing bread, breaking bread and eating with the Gentiles. And this is where the church, the early church, was growing and learning how to operate with both Jews and Gentiles and who is the gospel for and all these types of things. And yet, when the pressure was on, when his Jewish brethren would be, would be near him, he would then turn his back on the Gentile believers and act as if he had no fellowship with them, not break bread with them. And Paul got wind of it. And Paul confronted Peter, edified Peter, and called him out on his sin. And Peter humbly repents of his sin. And that leads us to a final thing that we see about Peter's strengths and weaknesses. is that just as bold as Peter seems to be in his speaking without thinking, in his natural, physical, fleshly leadership tendencies, we see just how frail all that is. John 15 says the flesh profits nothing, that apart from God's Spirit, we can't do anything, certainly cannot bear any spiritual fruit that remains. And that's what we see in Peter's natural personality or natural leadership bent, you could say. But what we also see is that Peter is so quick to repent, to truly repent. Peter is an example for us that is much different than than others that we see in the Scriptures, is that Peter is truly a child of God that will not be lost. He is truly what John 6 describes as, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I hold them in my hand and I will lose none of them. If you're asking the question, how is Peter even a Christian? That's the answer. He he will not be lost. He, He has been chosen by Christ and ordained for for the ministry that Christ prepared for him. And so we celebrate with him. We are strengthened by his example as Christ works in him. Listen to me. The lesson this morning is not go be a better Peter. Not try harder and follow some of Peter's leadership <clears throat> examples. Or certainly don't sin like Peter. The point is, is look at God's glorious grace as it's displayed in Peter's life. And celebrate with a brother celebrate with the sister in the same way we look around not only at how God has worked in the past as he calls these men to himself, but be encouraged and strengthened at your own journey in grace. Give all the praise to the God of all grace who gives grace to any of us. The fact that God would use any of us here this morning, all the praise goes to him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, some preach, some plant, but God is the one who gives the increase. Friends, we're reminded that all the grace goes to God, all the the glory, excuse me, goes to God. The next point I want us to consider this morning is what we find in Scripture is that Peter was transformed by the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 together, we see just a key moment in the life of Peter where this is on full display in the early church. We find that Peter has been recommissioned, if you will, after his public meltdown, his denying of Christ. One of the key things that we're told by the Holy Spirit is that Peter is regularly and consistently as he's used for service. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that he is constrained by me. He is filled by me. That's the command Paul gives in Ephesians 5.18 for all of us, for the church. Be filled, be controlled with the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit. This is a key thing that begins to be signified in Peter's life. Acts chapter 2 verses 4 through 14, we are told, as so we just kind of survey this text, that Peter stood up filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we would have to say certainly that is the case. How does how do men stand up and preach? Pour out their guts on display, willing to look like a fool before men. Street preaching. If you've ever street preached, You'll never feel your weakness as much as you will street preaching. We we should feel our weakness here, and we certainly do to those of us who do it. But the street preaching has another element to it, public preaching, that is absolutely crushing. There's just something about it that reminds you, God, if you don't do something here, I'm just going to get laughed at. There's no hope here except for the Spirit of God. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. God wants us to come to the end of ourselves and yield ourselves to Him. And that's exactly what happens as Peter stands up and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Look with me, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and begins to preach to them, talking about those that they're witnessing are not drunk, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the prophecy that was given by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to launch into a message that is bold, confrontational, the whole context is the sovereign, electing grace of God that we'll point to in just a moment. He is he pointed, in verse 22, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. He begins to describe for them what they have done in crucifying the Lord of God, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit of God, excuse me, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice within verse 37 and verse 36, because of Peter's, Peter's bold, confrontational preaching, they begin to realize that they are lost. Verse 37 says they're cut to the heart. They responded to Peter and the brethren and said, What shall we do? What hope may we have? Now this comes about because of Peter's bold preaching as he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God, as he's utilized by the Holy Spirit of God. What an example he is for us. Peter is not someone who just gets... Cast off the ship. He is not someone who just loses out on his day of grace. But God has not completed the work that he has for Peter. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he is confident, speaking to the church at Philippi, that God will complete the good work that has begun in them. And that's what we see here in Peter. Not only in this passage, but what we see in, throughout the Gospels is that Peter learned submission Peter learned restraint. Peter learned true humility. You say, well, how do you know, Legrand? Well, we see all the face plants in the Gospels. But if you look in 1 Peter chapter 2 significantly, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 2 Peter as a whole, you find Peter giving instruction about submitting ourselves to every ordinance of man and those who have the rule over us. Learning submission learning restraint we see in the gospels where he attempts to cut a man's head off and then we find in 1st Peter chapter 2 where he calls the church to suffer patiently as Christ suffered learning humility where he says oh god i will never leave you and i will never forsake you then he teaches the church in 1st Peter that god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble This is the Apostle Peter who's transformed by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, our final point to consider for Peter is his doctrine. And we will not take the time to to walk through it. But in Acts chapter 2 and 3, we find these passages that reveal to us that Peter gives us the core doctrines of the faith. Just in Acts chapter 2 alone, he preaches about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ, verses 24 through 32. The ascension of Christ the second coming, the need for repentance and the command to follow in believers' baptism. You know, oftentimes you'll hear the phrase, well, don't do doctrinal preaching. It divides. It does, it's not successful. It certainly divides, doesn't it? Peter's not afraid to, to preach doctrinally. He preaches all of it in one message. And the Holy Spirit anoints it and blesses it and adds to the church 3,000 souls that day. What a trophy of God's grace that Peter receives this privilege to be able to stand and to proclaim the first major message after the ascension of Christ. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, if you'll go back to Acts chapter 2, that how about that context of being the doctrine of election? In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we see just an example of what I'm describing there. Where he tells in verse 22, the men of Israel, that they have slain the Lord of glory. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You you hung him on a cross, but verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken with lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom the Lord raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that... He should be held by it. What we find here is Peter gives us so many of the seed forms, the foundational doctrines of the church. We're strengthened by this. The church was strengthened by this. The early church began to explode. And it's very obvious why Peter begins to be one of the leaders of the early church. Now, I want to conclude this morning in our final passage. If we'll turn to John chapter 1. We see in our list that there is both Peter, Simon Peter, and Peter. But then there's also his brother Andrew. The text says Simon first, Simon who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Now we'll take just a moment to point out the little-known, lesser-known Andrew. In Matthew chapter three, we already have seen already in the life where Jesus calls Andrew and Peter, to, excuse me, Andrew to follow him. And Peter to follow him, but here we see the backstory, the background of the story. Now we know a lot about Peter, we've spent a lot of time on Peter this morning, but the takeaway for us as we consider Andrew is that there would technically humanly be no Peter, humanly, Peter, if there were not an Andrew. Now, some of you have heard as we've walked and looked at Peter's example, his profile, how the Holy Spirit always puts him first, and who is this Peter? And as we study these additional accounts in Matthew's gospel, it helps us to have in our mind's eye, assuming that, not assuming that, everyone knows who Peter is, how God has used him, his his weaknesses and his strengths, all those things. But we need to consider Andrew as well. Maybe some of you have heard this morning. You thought, well, listen, I'm the goal is not to be a Peter. But one thing you've heard is, is I'm quiet, I'm shy. How could God use someone like me? You've emphasized how, how Peter was first among the apostles, and you've talked about how God could use him. Well, that's great, but what about those of us who don't have a natural temperament like, like Peter at all? Well, let me remind all of us the goal is not to be any of these guys, the goal is to yield to Christ, to let Him use you by the power of His Holy Spirit. But we see this example of Andrew. Andrew is quiet, he is behind the scenes. He is not forefront. He is not one of those who is bold, but yet Andrew is faithful. Notice with me, chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 29. The Bible says the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the context is John is preaching day after day, week after week, being a forerunner of the coming Messiah. And then he sees Christ and he immediately says, this is who I've been preaching about. This is the Lamb of God. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now jump down to verse 35. Notice with the, in the text it says, Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, who walked by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now two of John's disciples turned, they heard him speak, and they turned and beheld the Lamb of God, and then they then followed Jesus. They moved from John the Baptist, they then followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them, following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher, where are you staying? In other words, we want to follow you. We want to be your student. We want to be trained by you now. You are the Lamb of God. And so verse 39, he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him, remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Now notice how Andrew is known as. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. How many of you have been known by your either older sibling or your younger sibling? I'm sure many of you have. Oh, you're so-and-so's sister. Uh, You're not you in your, your own account. It's just the value that you have is connected to whoever you're related to. Andrew can relate. He's known as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now notice how the Holy Spirit describes him. Verse 41, Andrew, who first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And so he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. You say, so what? Here's what. Friends. Notice how Andrew points us to Christ. Andrew does not keep the gospel news to himself. Andrew is not content that he has now been a a disciple of John the Baptist and he now knows who is the Lamb of God and he just simply goes all in. But his immediate thought as we think about what is God's plan for the world as he calls these disciples and these apostles to himself. His plan is always the same. God, or Jesus Christ, will pour himself into these 12 men. And those men, in turn, will begin to shepherd and pour themselves into others. As Paul describes this process of, as we raise up elders and godly leadership within the church, teaching and raising up and training other men also, who will teach and train other men also. This is what we call discipleship. This is the plan of God until he returns. That we as a church follow this process. And that's what we see in this obscure, little-known disciple named Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. Who's Andrew? He first found his own brother. Friends, if we are disciples of Christ and we have no burden for other souls, then we have to question whether or not we're disciples of Christ. If we claim to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus and we are not seeking those who we know and love and seeking to bring them, notice how the text tells us, who first brought him to Jesus. This is all we know about Andrew. We don't know much about Andrew. In another passage that we will not turn to, the text tells us that there were some seekers who were looking for Jesus and they come to Philip and they come to Philip and say, we would see Je- We want to see Jesus. If Philip doesn't take them to Jesus. Guess what Philip does? Philip, Philip takes them to Andrew. And Andrew takes them to Jesus. Here's the point. Andrew is considered the finder. Andrew, if you want to know how to find Jesus, go find Andrew, and Andrew will take you to Jesus. Now, God has purposes and plans for us all, but on a threshold level, on a baseline level, friends, all of us can be those who take others to Jesus. Not all of us can preach. Not all of us can be that Peter who stands up and does what I'm doing today. But all of us in one sense can follow Andrew's example by just simply taking others to Jesus. Taking them to Christ and saying, let me introduce you to Christ. You don't have to be smart to do that. You don't have to be wealthy to do that. You don't have to be super gifted to do that. You just have to be willing. You have to be willing to die to self and say, let me tell you about Christ. And that's what we know to be true about Andrew, And as I told you last week, I got ahead of myself. Andrew was a much beloved apostle. He, it is said, legend tells us, tradition tells us that he went as one of the first missionaries continuing to preach the gospel all, all over what is modern day Europe. And the influence of Andrew extends all the way into the Americas today as we see St. Andrew's token flag uh, signifying the cross that shows how both he and Peter are supposed to have died as they died for the Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful to this gospel. Neither one of them would die in the same way that their Lord and master died, and so they requested to be crucified in a different way than him. Peter, the legend tells us, was buried uh, crucified upside down. And he said, "I'm not worthy to even die as the Lord Jesus himself died." Again, Matthew chapter 10 verses one through four is, is a different type of passage. It's a transition passage. The goal is not to be like Peter or like Andrew, but to look at them and see how they point us to Christ, that we rejoice with them and how God has poured out his grace in their life and to be stirred up in our own hearts to show and to be reminded of how God is working, can work, has worked in our own lives as well. Grace Church, may we never get stagnant with that. May the Lord help us as we consider these individuals, these men that God has called closely to Himself. May we be strengthened and encouraged by their examples as they point us to Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for grace. As a church who's chosen to have that as our name, I'm glad about that. Father, may we continually seek to live up to that name. As those who have received and been recipients of God's grace, Lord, may we be a gracious people, a people where the gospel is obvious, articulated, but that the fruits of the gospel and the spirit of the gospel permeates this place. Long-suffering, patience, forgiveness, truth. Lord, may you continue to stir us up. As Paul tells to Timothy, stir up the gift that is within you. Father, you have equipped this church for the purposes that you intend for us. And Lord, may we continue to pursue after that, making much of Jesus. Father, taking others and simply just being content to be known as, if this is what it is, as our profile, is simply, hey, he introduces others to Christ. He's not known for much else. But if you want to know Jesus, go ask her. Go ask them. Father, may you radiate in our lives. May the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. May you do this work in and through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.